0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. About 13 years ago, I climbed on the bandwagon and, like lots of other folks, read several books to better understand our history in Afghanistan and Iraq and with al-Qaeda and how we got into the mess and maybe how we'd get out. You might recall it was a bit of a golden age of reporting and writing, among them The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright, Fiasco by Thomas Ricks, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, Inside Iraq's Green Zone by Rajiv Chandrasekharan, The Places in Between, Roy Stewart's crazy story of walking across Afghanistan, as well as his follow-up, The Prince of Marshes. But the first one I read has long stayed with me and set the context for all the others to come. That was the Pulitzer Prize-winning Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden, from the Soviet invasion to September 10th, 2001. It was by Steve Call. You surely know, Ghost Wars outlined the CIA's secret history in Afghanistan, the Taliban's rise, the emergence of Osama bin Laden, and the failed efforts by U.S. forces to find and assassinate him in Afghanistan. It ends the day before 9-11. Now, finally, and thankfully, Steve Call is back on the beat. His new book is Directorate S, the CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It tells the story of America's intelligence, military, and diplomatic efforts to defeat al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan since 9-11. The book is as powerful and relevant and urgent as Ghost Wars was. It mixes details and insights and analysis that once again makes plain, in painful ways. What happened after those planes hit the World Trade Center? More about Steve Call. Somehow, writing some of the most important books on our most important foreign policies is not all he does. Call's day job is serving as dean of the Columbia School of Journalism. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker, author of seven books, and a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. There's a lot more, but you get the idea. That's also why, at the end of our talk, I picked up on my conversation from last week with Harvard professors Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. They wrote the outstanding How Democracies Die. My question for journalism, Dean Call, rather than the author, how does democracy work with people who think facts are alternative facts, that real news is fake news? How does it work with people who believe anything or nothing at all? But before we begin, I want to tell you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. Is the pending democratic wave still forming? What's next on immigration, infrastructure, and more? And what's in store for the next stage of congressional map drawing? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News's Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, Few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, "...a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative." People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Steve Call. Steve, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Glad to be here. So The Bone to Pick, 13 years for a sequel to Ghost Wars, I'm not going to lie, that's a long time. I mean, Robert Caro cranks uh, his sequels out faster. You know, a lot of us have been waiting a long time. What else do you have going on in your life? Why would you make us wait so long?
1: Well, I wrote two other 200,000-word books in the meantime, one about the Bin Ladens and another about ExxonMobil. But I did wait because I couldn't quite figure out how to write a sequel in the middle of the Iraq War. I didn't want to write about global al-Qaeda, I wanted to write a true second volume of, of what Ghost Wars had been. And so it was really when we, uh, the, we escalated the war in the Obama administration and also named the date to withdraw. And I thought, OK, maybe maybe there's an ending or some kind of a resolution of at least a second volume that I could work with. So that was that was the reason.
0: And yes, I'm, uh, of course kidding and aware of the, uh, Exxon book in particular. Yeah, I know you've, you've got a couple other things going on and you've got a day job as well that, uh, if we have a couple moments at the end, I, I would love to ask you about as well. Um, so I didn't realize, even though I've, I've read, of course, like everyone else, Ghost Wars, um, and the Exxon book I read. I didn't read the Bin Laden book. You'll forgive me. Um, I didn't realize that this part of your background, um, you kind of backed into becoming a Pakistan and Afghanistan expert, didn't you? Part of when you got uh, assigned, I guess, to uh, South Asia early in your career. So this it wasn't an area that you had kind of, to my knowledge, maybe I, I didn't read it right, but you hadn't grown up just dying to go to that part of the world and learning about that part of the world. Is, is it accurate you kind of backed into it?
1: Yeah, no, it is. Um, I I found myself at the Washington Post um, after starting out as a magazine writer. And when I settled in there, I very much wanted to become a foreign correspondent. And the way the system worked, you really could not pick where you went. They had at that time, 25 or 30 bureaus around the world. And the way they weeded out applicants was to say, you go where we send you. So I just applied uh, for the staff and for a while, I thought I was going to Poland, and I thought I was going to South Africa, and eventually they said, oh, you're going to South Asia. So it was. Um, I had about six months to prepare before I went out there. It turned out to be a very happy assignment. I really loved working out there when I got
0: there. And you've uh, obviously put in you know, quite a bit of time since then. So uh, so, so, let's get started. Um, Ghost Wars ends essentially on 9 uh, and uh, Director at s picks up essentially on nine eleven. And on nine eleven you're in Washington. Um, tragedy hits. And uh, if I read it correctly, you say to your wife, um, this is Osama bin Laden."
1: Yeah, it took me uh, till the second plane and a little bit of reflection to realize that. Um, but I think like a lot of people in the in Washington in various roles who had been Involved with bin Laden before the attacks, um, it made sense uh, that this was his ambition. It was shocking that he pulled it off, um, but not uh, that he intended to do this because he had already attacked U.S. embassies abroad and a U.S. warship in Yemen. And um, he had announced his ambitions to try to strike the United States um, uh, in, in on the continental uh, United States. So, um, yeah, it was... Um, um a scene in the book early on is that same morning in the CIA's counter-terrorist center where there's a unit set up to uh follow Bin Laden, try to identify where he is so he can be captured or killed. And um they see they have their T on and they see the first plane go in and they get into an argument about whether this is Bin Laden or a freak accident. And uh, the leader of the unit is saying, oh, it's definitely bin Laden. His colleagues are saying, well, you can't say that every time something happens in the world. You've become obsessed. And then the second plane goes in, and they're all like, oh, yeah, this is bin Laden. And actually, then an argument kind of breaks out in the counterterrorism center between the bin Laden unit, who says this is definitely bin Laden. We just need to get the evidence. And the unit that follows Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shia militia group, that's carried out overseas terrorist attacks from time to time. And Hezbollah says, oh, this is; these are our guys for sure. And uh, a few hours later, they find some names in the airplane manifests, the hijacked planes manifests, that make it clear that it is uh, Al Qaeda.
0: Once again, where you stand, it, you know, depends on where you sit. And uh, reading about that mini argument, your d- debate between the Hezbollah group and uh, um, I guess it was Bree at that point who was uh, arguing. That, right do i have that right he was the one arguing yeah, that it was richly, uh yeah. yeah that it was uh um bin laden and, and al-qaeda even even at that point and in those circumstances we all see things through uh the lenses i guess that that we have on so four days later president bush's speech to congress it's uh, actually i'm sorry nine days later it was september 20th mahmoud ahmed was was in uh
1: he was the director of Pakistani intelligence at the time, and he happened to be visiting Washington. And then he went back to Pakistan after that. Yeah,
0: he was there for nine eleven, right? He accepted the breakfast,
1: right? He was having a um, breakfast in the capital, U.S. Capitol, with some members of Senate, and they were evacuated because they thought um, they were. Um, in danger of being struck by one of the hijacked yeah.
0: planes. So he tells Ambassador Wendy Chamberlain, he tells DIA's David Smith, he tells other Pentagon officials, don't start a war. If the Taliban is destroyed, Afghanistan will be ruled by warlords. Was he wrong?
1: Um, well, it, he turned out to uh, forecast correctly what would evolved in Afghanistan gradually after the Taliban were overthrown. But, of course, a problem with his forecast is that his institution, ISI, was partly responsible for the Taliban's revival after 2005. So there were always these scenes where the Pakistani generals would warn their American counterparts, um, you know, you're going to fail. And they uh, proved to be correct uh, in broad strokes, but they were also part of the reason why the U.S. was struggling so badly in Afghanistan. So it was a very frustrating forecast to hear. The American response was, well, you know, we might do better if you would um, actually help us suppress the Taliban instead of encouraging them to return to the fight
0: and the, the trust question is one that I I want to get to um but but on that point you know you you write early on that um from the first days very first days after September 11th the United States adopted an ambiguous policy towards ISI that would haunt its ambitions in South Asia for years to come um i guess we you know maybe had a bit of an ambiguous policy towards ISI uh even in the ghost wars uh, days and, and, those years. But uh, talk to me about that, that, you know, that relationship with ISI, how much to trust, how not to trust. How, how does one build a, a relationship, particularly given the seriousness and, and complexity of what we're talking about? Um, how do you do that with, um, an, an agency like the ISI, um, and with a policy that, uh, is maybe not as straightforward as it, as it could be?
1: Well, part of the problem was that we, we waffled about what we really wanted from Pakistan, especially um, in the early years after um, September 11th. Our focus was on al-Qaeda. We recognized that it was al-Qaeda, the international terrorists who had migrated to Taliban-ruled Afghanistan, who had carried out these attacks and who represented the greatest danger outside of the region, uh, you know, against the United States, against European allies. And so our bargain with ISI initially was: you help us with Al Qaeda, the, the leaders and, and operators who fled Afghanistan during the fall of 2001 and and took shelter in Pakistan. You help us track those people down, and we'll give you a pass on the Taliban. Basically, we're not. You know, they did uh, arrest and deport to Guantanamo various. Taliban that they found on the battlefield in Afghanistan, and occasionally Pakistan turned over an Afghan Taliban to the U.S., but mostly it was about the Arabs, the Chechens, the Uzbeks. And there was a kind of um, space that ISI was provided by the U.S. during these years to, you know, maintain contacts with the Taliban. The the thinking was the Taliban were defeated, they weren't going to come back, um, and and even later, when the Taliban did revive um, and and started to um, fight again in Afghanistan in significant ways, and it became evident that ISI was supporting them, certainly giving them sanctuary, not pressuring them, and eventually that they were training them and supplying them. Yeah. Um, you know, the U.S. struggled with the question of, do we really want to fight a war with the Taliban? Um, it's They're an indigenous extremist movement. They did not there were no Afghans on the planes on 9-11. They were not carrying out attacks outside of the Afghan theater against the United States. And it was a, it was a question that, that really uh, bogged down both the Bush administration late in its uh, term and the Obama administration. And, uh, and ISI exploited the um, inability of the U.S. to resolve what it was trying to accomplish in the war against the Taliban.
0: And so, but one last question on the early stages before I move to uh, later on, and and you know some of the Osama bin Laden, um, and and the times when these trust questions, which that that really just kind of overwhelmed me in in reading the book, and just the the complexity of the multilateral lack of trust and inability to to create any type of um, shared understanding, um, but the. the the invasion the original invasion of of afghanistan um and a sense of you know was that a new did we have an option and was the going in there i mean i, I was i was taken by that that advice that had been given i mean w- was the choice to go in there um a new if you will original sin of um breaking in that area but on the other hand d- did we really have a choice
1: well, I, I don't think we did have a choice um, in the fall of 2001. Um, the main war aim of the attack on Afghanistan that fall was to try to break up Al Qaeda before it could mount another surprise attack. The you know the intelligence agencies, uh, even though they had a strategic sense and they they had warned that Al Qaeda was coming, that something big was underway, they could not identify the plot. They didn't know time and place. They didn't know who was participating in this plot. They could only pick up the chatter that something big was coming. And in the aftermath of the shock of 9-11, they had to tell the president, you know, there may be follow-on attacks. There may be other cells out there. We don't know where they are. And so the purpose of attacking Afghanistan was to get al-Qaeda's planners on the run to kill them, uh, but also to send them, uh, you know, scattering and that change their calculus to make them much more worried about surviving uh, the U.S. attack than planning the next um, strike inside the U.S. So it was a desperate uh, retaliation, but it had a purpose of self-defense. And the whole world was with the United States in this response. There was really no hesitation in Europe uh, within NATO to join the United States, and it was seen as uh, you know, both legal under international law and, and necessary given the scale of the 9-11 attacks by by many. Um, now, what happened, the, the missed opportunity was after the Taliban were defeated, that happened faster um, and with fewer international forces on the ground than I think almost anyone would have predicted in October of 2001. The war was essentially over by December and there was an opportunity to consolidate the victory and to reinforce the peace that followed the Taliban's uh, you know, collapse, and and they must those who survived moved into Pakistan. But we didn't um, see that opportunity uh, at the time. We, the Bush administration, immediately started planning for the war in Iraq. Um, we did not uh, develop a program to include. Taliban foot soldiers and lieutenants in the new order in Afghanistan that was emerging. Instead, we saw all Taliban as candidates for Guantanamo. The lessons of history are when you win a military victory like that, as we did in Germany or Japan, sure, you can hold leaders of the enemy force accountable, you can identify war criminals and try to bring them to justice, but you can't treat every foot soldier, every sergeant and lieutenant in the opposing army as a permanent enemy, because otherwise they're just going to regroup and that's the way we proceeded. And uh, there, that wasn't the only reason the Taliban uh, came back, but it was um, it was one of the reasons.
0: In ghost wars, I mean, you laid out uh, this in- incredible understanding and explanation for those of us who haven't uh, lived or worked or uh, reported from over there of how those networks work and and the relationships and the relationships among uh, CIA and and. Um, U.S. officials, but with, you know, within Pakistan and within Afghanistan and, and, and the levels of trust and, and how it gets built and then lost and, and, and all of that. And then we flash forward, you know, whatever, 10 years later, 15 years later. Did you, had we learned anything? Had we forgotten what we had learned? Did we, you know, remember what we knew, but it didn't matter because there were new players? How, how, how do you evaluate how we applied, you know, whatever type of institutional history, were we just making the same mistakes again?
1: Well, I, um, it's a good question. I think, you know, we certainly knew plenty about ISI and Directorate S from collaborating with them during the 1980s against the Soviet occupation. We understood why they had um, developed these policies of covertly supporting uh, Islamist militias to advance their um, perception of their interests in the region particularly to thwart India and they told us uh, again and again after September 11th um, you know don't be fooled by India you need to do more to include our uh, our clients in the political future of Afghanistan and and you know, so there wasn't, there wasn't like a deep, dark secret here that we didn't understand. The problem was that uh, partly we were just so bogged down in Iraq after 2004, that uh, the, the Bush administration and, uh, you know, the, from the president through the Pentagon, through the intelligence agencies, they they prioritized that war as it, as it um, became worse and worse. And they looked at Afghanistan and they, they sort of thought, well, at least it's not as bad as Iraq. And, they didn't see um, the Taliban coming, really. By the time the Taliban had revived uh, to, to such an extent that they were fighting a, a really serious insurgency in the South and East, uh, the United States had more or less turned the war over to the Canadians, the Brits, the Dutch, uh, in order to fight in Iraq, and it really just didn't have um, uh, the eyesight. It wasn't asking the intelligence agencies to collect information about the Taliban during this time. The, the focus was on al-Qaeda, and they just missed it. Um, Now, once uh, it became clear that the Taliban were back in action, the question arose, well, are our friends in Pakistan facilitating this? Um, And it was very hard for the Bush administration to digest the truth that they were, that they had made a decision to kind of change course. Now, Pakistan had its own problems. It was sometimes operating as much out of weakness as as out of design. But um, by the time the Bush administration really came to terms, at the very in the very last year of the administration, with the fact that Pakistan had was part of the problem that it, you know, as one of the analysts put it, that they might even be on the other side of the war from the United States, um, it was the, the Taliban had so much momentum that it was very difficult to um, to
0: reverse that momentum. Uh, another theme that struck me so the the inability to identify trust in any, in multilaterally really, um, you know, hit me. Another thing that, that, was striking to me in through the reading was the continual interplay and tensions between the you know what I might call the macro and the micro. So we we had this overarching goal that required this that continual balancing of the macro challenges with the ISI and and Pakistani elected leadership and Karzai and Afghanistan, and you know, the Afghan Taliban and, and Al Qaeda and obviously you know all of the the relationships there and and trying to figure out who's on what side and and at the same time, these micro challenges, these firestorms that flare in the, you know out of anyone 's control the the Bo Berg dolls, the Raymond davis uh, um, and, and others H- how do you view those competing tensions and were the, were the macro issues so complex and convoluted that navigating them was seamless, even navigating them seamlessly was impossible? Or is it impossible to navigate the big picture when, when these acute emergencies keep coming up or, or both? Um, how, how do you see that interplay?
1: Well, I think it goes to your first observation that there just wasn't enough trust. There wasn't enough mutual um, understanding that the goals of the two uh, governments, the United States and Pakistan, were not, um, aligned. And, and so when these crises arose and, you know, they'll, they will arise in a violent war. I mean, they're the product, these crises were the product of violence and, and there was not um, enough trust to manage them the way you would if they had flared up, you know, between say the United States and France or the United States and Britain, then there would have been an understanding between the two governments um, about how to respond in unison, or at least there would have been enough trust to figure out how to respond in unison. There was, uh, in the midst of all these little crises, a macro-conversation going on between the Obama administration and Pakistan about uh, trying to improve the big picture, and there were these discussions in which the Americans would say to the Pakistanis, well, what is it that you really want? Um, What would it take to get you to really change course and, and... uh, crack down on these groups, even um, at the risk of some instability in your own country. And the Pakistanis eventually answered that question. And it was, you know, it was a hard thing for the U.S. to hear because it was basically, you need to treat us the way you treat India. You need to give us a free a free trade deal. You need to um, support our claims against India in Kashmir. You need to help us with our struggles over water supplies and energy supplies. Uh, you need to really be an all-weather friend the way China has been to us. And, you know, when the U.S. received that list in late 2010, um, it was hard to digest because the part of the response inside the White House was, I'm not sure we could deliver any of this. I'm not sure Congress would go along. And this is, you know, this is, uh, this is hard. And before they could really even respond, then Raymond Davis, um, you know, shot dead a couple of uh, people on the streets of Lahore who we thought were about to rob him, and and these crises, these micro crises, as you call them, uh, flared up again. And during that following year, 2011, just when they had finally started to talk about the big picture, the relationship really collapsed. Yeah,
0: flashing forward, really forward, um, and I apologize for the big jump in in timeline here um, today. Uh, given the context that you know um, so, so today we 're in a situation you know, President Trump recently withheld uh, security aid from Pakistan for the harboring of the terrorists. Um, you know about the increase in violence in uh, kabul the the ambulance, the military base that was attacked, the intercon uh, the Save the children office um, you know you, 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 all of which I, I believe all of which have occurred since the announcement of the uh, withholding of the security aid. Meanwhile, just today, the day that we we're uh, having this conversation, um, the Taliban released an open letter to the American people calling for dialogue to end the Afghan war and and claiming that the US airstrikes that have occurred under Trump have not retaken even a single inch of land. Um, how is it that after 17 years, we're still talking about getting the Afghan Taliban to separate from Al Qaeda, quit the poppy production business and sit down with an Elected uh, Afghan government um, to stabilize the area. Um, w- w- what's your assessment of where we are today?
1: Well, the Trump administration has changed some aspects of policy. You pointed out they withheld aid from Pakistan, a kind of escalation of the tension that already existed before they came in. But I, I think, um, by and large, their approach to the war represents more continuity than change. Um, we, you know, at the height of the Obama administration's surge, there were 150,000 international combat troops in Afghanistan today. There may be 10 or 15,000. We're dropping more bombs than the last couple of years. But the map of the war really hasn't changed. It's been stalemated for a decade. And one of the reasons is that we haven't been able to resolve some of the contradictions in our approach to the war, you know highlighted by what you just described. For example, uh, almost every general who goes over there for the United States will say, this is not a war that can be won in a purely military way. We're not going to defeat the Taliban on the battlefield. Our purpose is to is to make enough progress to drive them to the negotiating table. Well, um, it's true that civil wars of this type that are stalemated in this way ever uh, only ever end through negotiations and efforts to reduce the violence, either direct talks with the enemy or those plus talks with regional governments that can influence the combatants. But even though we sort of acknowledge that this is the requirement. We, we uh, rarely resource the negotiating strategy or the diplomatic strategy. We, instead, we continually prior- prioritize military action. And there's the kind of echo of Vietnam, we're going to bomb them to the negotiating table. Well, we've been trying that for a decade. And you know, there, were, there were secret talks during the Obama administration that collapsed for complicated reasons. That's one of the threads in the book. But um, I don't see the Trump administration at this point uh, making a priority of the kinds of uh, political and diplomatic approaches that would um, uh, hold out the promise of, of reducing the violence
0: in Afghanistan. And Steve, my last question for you, if I could ask you to just put on the uh, your Columbia Journalism School dean's um, hat for a moment. I, I don't assume that you ever um, take it off. Um I spoke the other day with uh, Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. I'm sure you know they wrote uh, How Democracies Die. Uh, and this question, how does democracy work? And, and i you know, forgive me, this is the question at the end of the conversation that probably could be a uh, two hour lecture that you could give um, just on its own. Um, how does democracy work with um, people in our country who think that facts are alternative facts that real news is fake news how does it work with people who don't know what to believe and i think that's on on you know liberal or on the conservative side we don't know what to believe and that can be from the media from the government and so as as someone who you know has made a career and a living off of facts um, uh, how, how does our democracy work um, when we can't agree
1: on facts? Well, we become polarized. Um, I think there's a, there's a little bit of asymmetry in the loss of faith in facts and journalism. Judging by the opinion polls, um, conservatives are more likely to doubt um, journalism than than liberals. Um, but um, I think part of the crisis has been structural. There's been a fragmentation in the media caused by technological change, and so we've returned to the kind of journalism and pamphleteering of the, uh, you know, sort of 18th century, where journalism really started as a series of partisan arguments. Um, and it doesn't necessarily um, portend the end of the public square or of an informed citizenry, but it is definitely a, a change and a challenge. The, I take more seriously the truly fake news the manufactured false news that we've seen on social media and the inability of those social media platforms to get a grip on the misuse of their their uh, platforms and their power in public life in the United States um, whether it's by foreign governments that are trying to interfere or just you know mischief makers ideologues who have created these false uh personas and manufacture fake news for commercial reasons or ideological reasons. That problem is a serious one, and I'm afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better with the rise of artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, well, it uh, seems to be what uh, um, the intelligence leader said in uh, Congress as well, and I think we're all worried about it. Steve, thank you. Um, Thank you for uh, your time, and uh, thanks for uh, getting the sequel to Ghost Wars out. I know you were doing other things as well, um, but a lot of us waited uh, a long time for uh, a sequel to that excellent book, and um, uh, this was not disappointing in in the least. uh, um, So thank you.
1: Thanks for your patience. I appreciate it. Take care.
0: That was my conversation with Steve Call. Boy, his books are good. One other note. If you liked this conversation, I'd really appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a real difference in helping others find the podcast and my deep and continued thanks to everyone who has done it already. As always, though, if you don't like these conversations, well, thank you for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. My thanks to Steve Call for the conversation and to you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.